um, Tom, it, Nicholas Thomas Wright, uh, Tom, affectionately N.T. as an author, um, was the Bishop of Durham for a number of years. Seven, seven years. Seven years. Uh, we've got a bunch of Southern Baptists and, and others in here. Uh, explain what the Bishop of Durham is exactly, please. Uh, okay. The Church of England is divided into uh, regions which are called dioceses, each of which has a bishop who is the senior pastor of that area. And within that diocese, there's a number of parishes, so that when I was bishop of Durham is in the northeast of England, um, and I had about 250 parishes, each of which have their own clergy and then some lay leadership in some of them at any rate. And so you're, you're the senior pastor for that whole region. And also, um, within the Church of England, there is a kind of a seniority between the bishops, so that the archbishops of Canterbury and York are the two senior ones, and then after that, the order goes London, Durham, Winchester. So I was um, basically the fourth in seniority in the Church of England for those seven years, and that meant automatically things like um, being a member of the House of Lords and so on. So, whoa, 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 whoa. You were a member of the House of Lords? Sure, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so the, those of you who didn't, don't remember your British political science, um, uh, you have Parliament and members of Parliament, MPs, I guess, yeah, yeah. and then you've got the House of Lords. You know, we have the Senate and we have the House of Representatives or Congress. It's not quite the same, but in a sense, bicameral... Uh, 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 over there. So you were like in the House of Lords? Would you show up and vote? Yeah, sure. But um, there are 26 bishops, I think, out of all the bishops, 26 are in the House of Lords. But because um, you're very busy in other parts of the country, the chances of being in the House of Lords more than a few days a month is remote. Um, if you're the Bishop of London can get in because he can, he, he lives basically there and one or two other local ones, it would take me about four hours minimum to get from home in the northeast of England into the House of Lords in London, whether I did it by plane or train or car, it was always going to be four hours. So that if you're taking part in a debate, you have to stay for the conclusion of the debate because the government minister responds to the debate and it's very impolite not to be there. So you can't go and take part in the debate and still get back home in time to do a confirmation service or some other thing in a parish in the evening. So I had to put a week at a time in to the diary to be in London and take part in whatever debates were going on while I was there, which is a bit hitty-missy, but it's a way of making sure that the church has a voice in the councils of state, making sure that certain key things, whatever the issue is, can be put on the public record in part of the the debate in the country. So did you like do that? Would you like say, hey, uh, God's not going to smile if you do this? Uh, we wouldn't quite put it like that. Um, <laughs> in fact, if one tried to impose a Christian point of view, that would be rejected as you're just trying to ram your faith down our throats, etc. So one would have to make uh, the argument 
on broader grounds, if possible, which is a very interesting point philosophically how you do that. I remember Rowan Williams, when he was Archbishop, speaking in the debate on euthanasia, assisted dying, as it's called. And uh, he was very clear about a kind of general moral basis that could appeal to anyone and everyone, but the people on the other side were attacking him as, oh, that's just a Christian point of view and we've given that stuff up. Of course, most people in Britain haven't really given Christianity up. They just haven't quite figured out what it might be. Um, it, it's, you know, in other words, we're not a bunch of ex-churchgoers anymore. That was like two generations ago. We're quite different from you in that respect. But yeah, it was. I found it a very good place to speak. It's a comparatively small chamber, and the uh, the other peers in the House of Lords um, enjoy having bishops speak because bishops are, uh, are always speaking and, and tend to speak rather better than some of the uh, um, uh, older politicians who are in there. Okay, well, we're going to move yeah. to another thing here in a minute, but first I've got to find out. So, like, was, could, could people call you Lord? Did you, like, get that title? Uh, Lord uh, Tom? No, it would, oh. be, it would be Lord Bishop. Um, uh, Lord my, Bishop my, Tom? My, 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 no, no, not Tom, no. <laughs> it, it's a curious thing. The, the, these have developed over the years, but in, in theory, uh, I, I was Lord Bishop of Durham. And so if I was in the House of Lords, then the staff and so on would just refer to me or address me as my Lord Bishop, whatever. So, Has your wife, Maggie, how long have you and Maggie been married? 51 years nearly. Okay. Mm. Has your wife, Maggie, ever called you my Lord Bishop? Because um, I've never heard that from her. No, I don't recall her ever using any such <laughs> language as that. Um, well, M- Mark has met Maggie and knows how unlikely that would be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that would be, yeah, not, not happening. Um, uh, she... She keeps Tom very level. Uh, uh, his wife, Maggie, one day I'll, I'll convince her to come over here. But whenever we get a chance to be over in Oxford, uh, I always ask Maggie to dinner and tell her she can bring a plus one. Because she's, she's, she is such a wonderful, incredibly devoted believer, wife, grandmother, mother, uh, uh, just a, a superb lady. Um, okay, so... Uh, Queen of England, um, every year at Christmas, gives a Christmas message on TV. I have found it to be profoundly Christian. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah, the, the Queen clearly is a lifelong practicing Christian. Um, she was obviously brought up in the Church of England, as all the royal family were, but whereas for some of them it seems to be, oh, well, you just turn up when you need to, but it doesn't really mean anything. But in her case, it obviously went very deep from, I think, quite an early age. And uh, though she's not given to um, extended discoursing about her faith, when it comes to it, it's very clear where she stands. It was very interesting in about 20 years ago, um, I remember this happening, when some of her advisors, it was, it was known that some of her advisors were saying to her, um, ma'am, when you do your Christmas message, Britain is now a multi-faith society. It's much more polychrome and much more diverse, so we probably need to soft-pedal all that explicitly Christian stuff. The Queen's response was to 
up the ante considerably and talk more explicitly and more exactly about following Jesus and about how Jesus and everything that he had done and meant um, has been her guide throughout her life and that she was commending this to her to her people and she does it graciously and and winsomely and you know she she wouldn't shout she just says this is this is how I have organized my life and you can see that that it's true and when when you're with her in a church service or whatever she she is a, a devout lady she's a praying person Okay, you, you have been with her in a church setting. In fact, sure. you've been in her home. Well, one of her homes, yes. Two, two of her homes. Um, <laughs> I mean, Buckingham Palace is the sort of official place, um, and Windsor Castle is where I think they think of as more as home. But then Sandringham is where they go for Christmas and for New Year. The Queen has traditionally taken about five or six weeks um, uh, in, in Sandringham from mid-December to mid-January. And one of the things she does when she's there is that she invites the bishops, one at a time, to come and preach in the local parish church on the Sunday morning. And so I was invited to preach, um, must have been January 2004, I think. Um, and uh, that was that was quite an interesting experience on a number of fronts. Okay, <laughs> are you? A, I, I don't I don't want to like get into stuff that you're not allowed to say, but nobody's <laughs> listening except the internet um, and everybody in here. Uh, so so don't like uh, tell state secrets and things like that. But but I mean, you like were you didn't just like preach at her church service you you like were welcomed into yeah, the staying on famille for for 36 hours yes yeah yeah um, which is, uh, well you were uh, a renter for the from the queen yeah i mean sandringham is a big house a big old-fashioned english country house and there are all sorts of different private apartments and there's a guest wing where they will put visiting clergy down one end of the corridor as it were um and, uh, and that that was that was fine and in a, in a way, it felt almost too natural. It was just like a larger version of a nice, a nice English house um, with some very interesting artifacts and pictures and goodness knows what. But this, so it's going back 20 years, so the Queen will have been in her mid-70s, Philip slightly older. The weird thing for me, walking in on a Saturday afternoon, I'm going to preach on the Sunday morning, but walking in on the Saturday afternoon was the Queen and the Duke were sitting there in their drawing room, their living room, um, the Duke in a, a, a cardigan watching the news on the television and the Queen um, with a, a glass of something um, playing card patience. Um, and when I walked in, I, I felt this was, they were like my parents. You know, this was a Saturday afternoon. This is pretty much how my parents would have been. Dad watching the television news, mum playing patience. And so I had to realize, no, this is the Queen and the Duke. You have to say your majesty. And, okay, but they're very welcoming and very hospitable and, um, and very engaging. I mean, the Queen is a good conversationalist and she's quite funny and, and, and quick. Um, and Philip is, was, bless him, he's dead now, of course, but Philip was very sharp, very intellectually. Um, so he would coast along. If he wasn't particularly interested in the conversation, he would just um, mumble and say a few things. But if some topic came up, and there were many topics in which he was actually expert, whoosh, he would, he would go for it. And that was, so it was an exciting weekend. <clears throat> One time I had uh, lunch with uh, the president of uh, Texas Tech. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so uh, um, I, I, I'm sorry I can't leave this on. What did you preach on? I mean, did you like oh. craft a message to the queen? And let me tell you about the laments of Romans 8. No, we didn't go there. It was, okay. it was the Sunday when in the lectionary, this was actually weird, because the Sunday morning is at Little Parish Church near the, the, near the big house, and there is a local vicar who is in charge of that, and there's a local congregation, maybe 50 or 70 people who would be there on a Sunday morning, um, and you always have some hangers-on and some press photographers because the royal family are there, etc. So, um, but we, I was told, here is the... the uh, the, the lectionary for the day, and it was the story of John the Baptist, and so it was, I remember it was Mark chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, and the weird thing happened was that the guy who got up to read the lesson was a man who had been George the Sixth's treasurer um, 50 years before. He was getting on a bit, and instead of reading Mark 1, 3 to 11, he unblinkingly read Mark 4, 3 to 11, which, as you will know, means that he cut in in the middle of the parable of the sower. So he just says, here beginneth, and some seed fell on dry ground, whatever, um, without any buy or leave, and then stopped in verse 11, which likewise in chapter 4 is a stupid place to stop. But so he did, and he sat down. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's interesting, because I have a sermon here on Mark 1, 3 to 11. Um, um, and the weird thing was that nobody noticed. The vicar, the, 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 the vicar didn't notice. The queen obviously hadn't noticed. So when I came to preach, I just began by saying, this Sunday in the church's calendar, we, we think about John the Baptist. So I just segued into that. And then as we were walking down the path afterwards, the queen said, um, oh, thank you very much for your sermon. I said, well, it was a little strange because I was preaching on the passage set. But, of course, your chap had read something from three chapters further. Oh, had he? I didn't realize, she said. Um, and then... And then when we got back to the house, she had obviously told Philip, and Philip said, said uh, and I don't know if you know this expression, it's from rugby, he said, I gather we sold you a dummy this morning. You know, <laughs> did, you, did you have that expression in your sports? No. When, when, when somebody pretends to pass the ball, and, then, and instead they hang on to it, and everyone tackles the other guy instead of, uh, yeah, so that's selling a dummy. So, uh, so, so then we, we had a little laugh about that, but it uh, worked out. So one, one, one Sunday... Uh, uh, so Tom uh, lectured last night uh, at the library, for those who may not know it. Um, a, a number of years back, we had Justice Scalia from the Supreme Court of the U.S., uh, Nino Scalia, lecture on a Saturday night. And or, no, he, this was a time where he had lectured at, at Texas Tech on a law school. And, and I had taken him hunting for the weekend after the lecture. But on Sunday, uh, I told him, I said, I've got to fly back because I've got to teach my class. So I'm going to come back and teach my class, but I'll be back in time for lunch. And, um, and he said, that's good. Do you have someone who can take me to a mass? I need to go to a mass because he's Catholic. And, and we were down um, in, the, in what we call the valley. It was down in South Texas. And, and Scalia is very olive-skinned, you know, his Italian heritage, but he looked Hispanic in that area of the country. And so uh, Juan and Jesse, two of my fellows, drove him to this church. There were 10 people attending mass that morning other than Justice Scalia, Juan and Jesse. It was such a small church that they would have itinerant priests come in to give mass. This fella had driven down from Midland, Texas, about four hours to do mass for Justice Scalia. And he had a, a homily to give. 
Now, Justice Scalia was famous for being the most pro-capital punishment justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Absolutely. He didn't care about the Catholic position. He thought the Pope was wrong. He thought everybody else was wrong. In spite of being a devout Catholic, he was pro-capital punishment. Lo and behold, that Sunday, the itinerant priest who came in to do Mass was the head that year of the Catholic Church's movement to ban capital punishment (laughs) in America. So without knowing that Justice Scalia is anybody in particular sitting on the back row, thinking he's just one of the Hispanic 10, 13, I guess, that were there, he gives a sermon on why God frowns about capital punishment and anyone who is a pro-capital punishment person doesn't belong in the Catholic Church. And Scalia is just sitting there listening to it. So I teach this class. I get in the car. I'm driving like a banshee to the airport. I'm calling Juan and Jesse to make sure everything went off without a hitch with Scalia going to mass. And I'm talking to Juan. And Juan says, uh, I said, how'd it go? He says, boss, uh, uh, he's, he's upset. And I said, what? He says, yeah, it didn't go well. I said, are you joking? He says, no, no, no. He's really upset. And I said, what, what happened? He said, and he tells me, this preacher gets up and starts talking about capital punishment. You can't be a good Catholic if you believe in capital punishment, da, 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 da. And he said, Scalia, after Mass, was just really visibly upset. And I said, uh, I said, okay, he'll be fine. Don't worry about it. So I get there. I get there in time for lunch. We go in and we sit at lunch, and Scalia says to me, he says, how was your class? I said, my class was great. I said, did God have a special message for you today? (laughs) (laughs) He looked at me, and he looked at Juan and Jesse and said, you told them. (laughs) And we all started laughing. But, uh, yeah, the chance to preach. I, I, I asked Scalia afterwards, I said, can I please write? the the priest that came down and tell him you tell were in the audience <laughs> and he said no and i said i said you have a son who's a priest nino i said look that guy drove eight hours round trip to give mass to 13 people and probably thinks it was a total waste of his time but if he knows that you were in the audience for that message for the rest of his life he will drive eight hours to preach to one person just in case he says all right, you can write him, but tell him I disagreed. <laughs> Deal. So how do you go into a place where you know you're going to be preaching and you know the message will be received by any number of different people with any number of different views? How do you, how do you handle that? Because you speak yeah. all over. Well, yes, inevitably, particularly if you're an itinerant preacher and a bishop almost by definition is an itinerant preacher because if you have 250 parishes and you're doing a couple of services on Sunday, maybe four or five services on weekday evenings, you're going to see different people all the time, 99% of whom you do not know, you may never see again. So you simply have to pray, you have to look at the scriptures, you have to say, I think the message I'm hearing from these scriptures goes thus and so. And sometimes that, I mean, it's it's weird. You, you, You will know, perhaps, but preachers will know that when you're preparing a sermon, sometimes it's really, really hard work and you struggle to think, how can this text relate to the people I think I'm going to be speaking to? Other times you just look at the text, say a prayer, and it's, oh, it's this point, this point, and this point, job done. And, um, and all things in between. And then the telling moment is when the job is done and you're standing at the door afterwards shaking hands, 
when people come up to you and say, I'm so glad you made the point about such and such. And half the time you think, yeah, I'm glad I made that point too. And the other half of the time you think, I don't remember saying that. But, <laughs> but, 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 if that but if that's what God wanted you to hear, then fair enough. So uh, there's a sense of preaching being um, a kind of a broadcast thing. You have no idea who's listening. And particularly, I say this to seminarians now. I mean, I'm working in Oxford with people who are training for ministry that when you look out at a congregation, like I'm looking at you all now, um, you have to remind yourself that behind every apparently placid face, there are secret sorrows, there are great joys, there are hopes and expectations, there are frustrations and, and disasters that have gone on, and you, there's no way of assessing. And, and if you could, it would probably be dangerous what this person needs right now. You simply have to pray that somehow you will address through your exposition of the scriptures those needs which God knows need addressing. <clears throat> and if people have ears to hear, then they must hear. So in a sense, it would be deeply counterproductive if somebody got up in the pulpit with the Queen and the Duke and people there and started telling them what was... I mean, okay, Hugh Latimer did that in the 16th century and he ended up being burnt at the stake, though that was a, a, for a different reason. Um, but uh, in a sense, they would be inoculated against that. The, the, so I would always take the view that you have to expound the scriptures that are there. And okay, you're aware that these are significant people within the life of the nation, but they are still human beings who stand coram deo in the presence of God and have personal responsibilities before God and responsibilities for the nation under God. But um, they are still to be addressed as people who need to hear the word of God for themselves. And what flows out of that is what flows out of that. So, as... All right, so how did you develop your passion for Scripture? <laughs> or when? Just explain that. Yeah, it goes back a long way. Um, I, I was given a Bible on, actually, Coronation Day, um, June the 2nd, 1953. I was four and a half years old, and my sister, who's a year older than me, she and I were each given a Coronation Bible. I've still got mine, a little King James Version with a crown stamped on the front and a date, you know, June the 2nd, 53. My parents obviously thought this was a good thing for us to have. And uh, uh, I think I tell the story in the preface to one of my books that um, uh, my sister and I went and sat on the floor in, in her room and looked at this amazing book and realized this is quite significant. And we decided then and there, we were going to read something from it. But, you know, when you're four and a half and you've only just learned to read, it's a bit daunting. And we flicked through and we found that there was a book which was only one page. That was the letter to Philemon. And we read, we read the letter to Philemon out loud to each other on Coronation Day 1953. Um, I'm not sure we understood too much of it, but um, we kind of felt we'd made a start, as it were. Um, and... Uh, Going to church through the next um, eight, nine years, um, I would hear scripture read, uh, I would sing, I was in the choir, so we would sing the psalms and so on. So I kind of knew the psalms quite well by the time I was 11 or 12. When I was 12, I think, somebody from the scripture union was trawling around the schools in my area and giving little talks. And for some reason, the schools, even though it wasn't a specifically Christian school, were quite happy to have this. And this guy um, came with Scripture Union notes to help you read the Bible and suggested that 
It's a good thing to read the Bible every day. And here is these notes which will give you a passage for each day and a little paragraph about what it means and a prayer to pray and so on. And I, I was perhaps his easiest um, taker. I was just absolutely ready for that. And I started then reading the Bible every morning, and I've never seen any reason to stop. Um, now, through my teens, I would follow Scripture Union, and then I was at um, uh, holiday camps organized by um, uh, um, the boys' camps organized by the, the Border and Highland camps, they were called, because I was in the north of England. And we'd go up to Scotland, and for a week or a fortnight, we would have great fun in the highlands and play games and climb mountains and things but morning and evening there would be bible exposition by one of the leaders um, probably 10 minutes and we'd open the bible and here's this passage and this is what it's about this is how it applies to you and now let's say a prayer and then encouraging you to be reading it yourself and so on so through my teens that became a kind of secret hobby again i think i've said somewhere teenage rebellions take many forms and i'm glad this was one of mine that um, this was something that my parents had not told me to do i don't think they knew necessarily that i was reading the bible every i mean they would have been perfectly happy for me to do that um, but uh, this was for me a way of discovering new worlds that were not coming out. I mean, our church was very traditional and middle-of-the-road Anglican, um, not much that we would consider Bible teaching as such, bits and pieces. And so through my teens, that was growing, and I would be learning particular verses and so on. And then when I became a, a, an undergraduate in Oxford, I was part of the Christian Union. We had Bible expositions every Saturday night with people like John Stott or Dick Lucas or Jim Packer who uh, would come and expound a passage of Scripture. And then we'd go away and we'd drink coffee till the small hours and, and, and dissect it and, and argue about it and so on. And uh, the sense of needing to discover what this extraordinary book was actually saying became hugely exciting intellectually, personally, morally, socially, etc. And it's gone on being that way ever since. And uh, it's been a, a fun way to spend my life, I have to say. I'm very glad I made those decisions early on. And you still are intoxicated uh, well, by, by it's, Scripture. I mean, it, it's extraordinary. It's, it's as though you, you see a great vista of biblical truth, um, and that's enough to get you going. And then as you start to explore it, oh my goodness, there's all this stuff that nobody told me about. And then there's this. And, and probably each decade of my life, I have glimpsed larger things which were there in the Bible. And you know, if you read the Bible regularly, very often you will have the sense, I'm sure that passage wasn't here last time I came through. You know, it's a, <laughs> um, it, it must have been, but you just passed over it. And so, and, but now it, it, it's meaning something more. You're making the connections. And, and getting more into the rich texture of the whole thing and the larger themes. So that, that just goes on and on. You told the, the story last night about Maggie, your wife, uh, commenting on one of the books you were working on. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that bears telling Jesus. again because okay. uh, we've got well, a lot was, of people that weren't there. Okay, it was, um, this must have been about 2011, I think. So, okay, just over 10 years ago when HarperCollins asked me to do a book called Simply Jesus. I'd written Simply Christian a few years before that, and they said, we think you should follow this up with Simply Jesus. So I was like, fine, okay, um, that sounds like fun. In fact, it was, it was a bit harder than I'd imagined, but uh, Maggie asked me at one point, so what is this book you're working on? And I said, well, it's a book about Jesus. She says, you've already written one book on Jesus, if not two or even three. And I said, yeah, I have. So she said, well, has Jesus changed? Um, um, <laughs> it's a good question. And I thought about it for a moment, and I said, no, but maybe I have. 
which is, I think was, was a true answer, that I was seeing more things in the Jesus story than I had before. Not, not, not to contradict what was there before, but to come at it from different angles and to say, well, now I think we really need to highlight this. And maybe that'll go on. It's, it's, it's exciting. So what's, what's uh, you say each decade's kind of been a project. What, what is the decade you're in now? Not numerically, but, but thought-wise. Yeah, yeah, good question. I, I think for the last decade, I've been harvesting the fruits of a lot of work that's been done on what you might loosely call temple theology. And those of you who know my work will know what's going on there, particularly chapter five of my Gifford Lectures, History and Eschatology, where creation itself in Genesis 1 is a temple. A temple is a heaven plus earth place with an image at the heart of it. Genesis 1 describes the creation of a heaven plus earth unity with an image in the middle of it, namely um, uh, the image of God, which is human beings. So we have the two spheres of heaven and earth, which were always meant to be in relationship with one another and eventually meant to, to merge together. And heaven is God's space, earth is, is our space, but humans are called to stand at the dangerous intersection between the two, um, that's what being in the image of God means. But anyway, once you start to see Genesis as a temple, then you also start to see the tabernacle in Exodus um, 25 to 40 and the temple in 1 Kings 8 when Solomon dedicates it as the phrase I've used again and again, small working models of new creation. That After the fall, God's aim is not to abolish earth eventually and rescue some people to take them back to heaven, but to continue the purpose of heaven plus earth, uh, but to launch that by having Israel be the tabernacle-bearing people. Israel is called to be the people who, having been rescued from slavery, having been given Torah to shape them so that they are able, well, sort of and sort of not, to be the tabernacle-bearing people, then God comes to dwell in the midst. And the tabernacle is a small working model of what it looks like when heaven and earth come together, the decoration, the, the furniture, etc. And there you have the human being in the middle who is the high priest, Aaron. Um, in First Kings 8, it's the king who's in the middle, Solomon. But it's the same deal. And it's fascinating because this whole business of how the cosmology works. Solomon says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house. Nevertheless, you've promised to put your name here. So when we pray towards this house, then please will you in heaven here, etc., etc. So then throughout the Old Testament... Uh, Israel is the people who are called to be the bearers of the promise that eventually God will do for the whole creation what he's done for the temple. Because the presence of God fills the temple in Exodus, the tabernacle in Exodus 40. The presence of God fills the temple in 1 Kings 8. And there are those promises in Habakkuk 2, in Isaiah 11, in Numbers 14, in um, Psalm, did I say Psalm 72, Isaiah 11 particularly, that the whole earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, God is going to do for the whole creation in the end what he's currently doing in and for the tabernacle or the temple. Now, when you pick up that entire glorious seam of thought, which I had never, ever, ever heard mentioned to me until maybe 15, 20 years ago, but then particularly in the last 10 years, and then bring it through to the New Testament, 
oh my goodness, the sense that it makes. The, the Johannine prologue um, hinges on this. The word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst and we gazed upon his glory. The, the coming of Jesus is God fulfilling his purpose to come himself and be the glory at the heart of the, of the world, holding heaven and earth together. And then when Jesus has done what he has to do, the Holy Spirit is given to be the one who now fills the hearts of God's people against the day when God will do that for the whole creation. So that the Spirit, in, here we are, it's Pentecost today, did you know, in the great church calendar. Um, the Spirit filling our hearts is not simply to give us a bit of a spiritual buzz while we're on the way somewhere else. It's the anticipation of what God is going to do in the whole creation. So um, that's kind of a biblical theology in terms of tabernacle and temple. I think it's enormously important. And because in the Protestant churches of the West, temples have been, you know, that sort of churchy and maybe too Jewish, and so we just treat it as a loose metaphor. In fact, it's a wonderful creational theme comes through particularly in Colossians. John and Colossians are two obvious places and then gloriously in Ephesians. But once you start seeing it, it's all over the place. So that's, that's perhaps the most significant big thing that's happened in the last 10 years in my thinking. All right, let's, let's, uh, when, when you speak on things like that, it is the functional equivalent for many of trying to get a drink of water from a fire hydrant. <laughs> okay. So what I'd like to do is break it down for just a moment. And, and walk through it. Um, you, you started out by saying the temple is uh, the meeting place, in a sense, of heaven and earth. And that humanity, uh, a fully human, a full spiritual human, is called to be, live in that intersection. Fair? That's what the, being the image is, is reflecting heaven to earth and reflecting earth back to heaven, which oh. is a dangerous, responsible place to be. But, but that's, I mean, in, in a temple in the ancient world, an ordinary pagan temple, that's what the image does, is make the God present in that space and um, channel the worship of the local people back to the God. Now, if humans are the image in Genesis 1, that's the human vocation, um, which is why the Jews don't have an image in their temple, because only a living, breathing, worshipping human being could be that which is also implied, at least, if not more directly stated, in that Genesis 1 is clear that God calls and names the, the, the d darkness night and the, the daylight yeah, day, yeah. and God names and God names, and yet once he's made man in his image where man is to reflect God uh, to the world, he says, now you get to name the animals. Yeah, yeah. Now you do it. Yeah. And whatever Adam named them, that was that the was name, the name. Yes, because yes. that's as if God had done it, because yes, he's an yes. image bearer, he's reflecting. Exactly, exactly. And that is picked up in Psalm 8, which though, I mean, it's interesting, this isn't a theme which comes very often in the Old Testament. In fact, it's, it's conspicuous by its absence, the idea of the image, for much of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. A couple of flickers at the beginning of Genesis, as you know, but um, Psalm 8 though it doesn't use the word image, is exactly this. What are humans? What is the son of man that you take thought for him? You've made him little lower than the angels to crown him with glory and honor, putting all things in subjection under his feet, all sheep and oxen, 
even the beasts of the field. Where are we? Here we, Here we are. are. Verse 5. Um, that's it. And 6 and 7, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And then finishing, O Lord, our governor, how excellent is your name in all the world. That's it, O Lord, our Lord. Um, and so within the praise of God, the human task is to look after God's world and to be the people of praise who sum up the praises of creation before God. I see this all the way across to Revelation 4 and 5, where creation in general, the beasts in Revelation 4, are praising God just because holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Um, When the humans join in, they add the word because you are worthy of praise because you created all things. That's what I think is one of the significant differences that the task of the humans is to add the word because to the praises of all creation. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, That's beautiful. Um, okay, so if we just use Psalm 8 as, as mm-hmm. a, a reference point, since you've referenced it multiple times today and last night, uh, remind our listeners some of which uh, are, are new. Uh, if you look at the provocative first sentence there, the first phrase, O Lord, our Lord, it's also in the last, in, in the way this is set out, but you'll see Lord yeah. is written in all uppercase letters the first time, and the second time it's not. The second time it's a reference to a, a Hebrew concept like the Lord Bishop of Durham <laughs> type Lord gets the capitalize, but it is uh, um, Adonai or Adonoi, if you're Ashkenazi, uh, it's, it's the sovereign. common word for Lord. The sovereign one. Yes, the yes, sovereign yes. Lord. So, so it's, it's translated, you could translate it, O Yahweh, our sovereign. Yeah. And, and the, the, the Greek, the Septuagint, can't pick that up because it uses Kyrios for both. So it's Kyrios or Kyrios Hemon, which is like, uh, how does that work? Yeah. It, it, it's, so the capitals are to tell us that in the Hebrew, this is the, the name of God. This is the uh, Yahweh that, that is God's revealed name to Moses, and, and it's the holy name of God. Um, with all of the CV or curriculum vitae and resume and character that is involved in a name. Um, so you've got, O oh Lord, our Lord. Now, the interesting part about this, how majestic is your name, which is a reference back to Yahweh. the Yahweh, uh, and a good Jew reading scriptures, when they see the name of God, it's so holy you don't pronounce it. So they will substitute either Adonai, which is Lord, or they'll just say Hashem, which is the name. the name, okay? So how majestic is your name? Now, there are a number of scholars. Uh, David Capes is well published on this. Uh, I would assume you're in agreement. I'm certainly in agreement that uh, believe that Paul often uses the word Lord uh, in reference to the Lord Jesus to mean Jesus as Yahweh. Yes. Fair? Uh, absolutely. Then there are some very striking instances of that. Um, Romans 10, the obvious one, when Paul talks about all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, which is a quotation from the prophet Joel, but it's clear that this is calling on the name of Jesus, and so there is a kind of convergence. And the, one of the fascinating things about that is that this is such a breathtaking thing to do, to use Yahweh texts from the Old Testament 
in relation to Jesus. But at no point do we find Paul saying, now I know, I know this is going to be difficult for some of you, let me explain what's going on. He just takes it for granted that this is what you do. And, and perhaps the best known passage would be 1 Corinthians 8, 6, um, which um, to get the full force of it, you have to think of the Jewish prayer, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, which runs... Um, uh, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, 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 Adonai God. But Adonai is Yahweh there. Uh-huh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or Yahweh our, our Lord, the Lord is one. And there's different ways you can translate it. But what Paul does here, um, for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, if you pan out a bit from that, I'm not sure if you can do that, but the whole paragraph is about how to be a Christian in a pagan environment. Concerning food offered to idols, we know we all possess knowledge, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now that's from the Shema again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And it's clear Paul's got the Shema in mind all the way through because his point is, when you're thinking about how as a Christian to behave in a pagan environment, the point is we are monotheists, not pagan polytheists. So if you're a Jew and you want to make the point that we're monotheists, what do you do? You quote the Shema. And so in the next line, he says, an idol has no real existence in that, quote, there is no God but one. This is the standard Jewish monotheistic formula. And yet, okay, Paul, let's just spell out what do you actually mean. Well, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And then if you put this in the Greek um, and line it up against the Greek of Deuteronomy 6, it is quite remarkable um, there is one God the Father um, in the Septuagint the Deuteronomy passage would be Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one so Paul has said the whole point is we're monotheists not pagan polytheists but at the middle of that monotheism is God the Father and Jesus the Lord and, and you have there both the puzzle and the glory of the beginning of Trinitarian theology in a nutshell. And again, he doesn't explain it. He doesn't say, I know that's a bit tough for some of you. He just says it, and there it is. I actually think that just as Jews then and now prayed the Shema as uh, rather like some in the Orthodox tradition pray the Jesus prayer, just Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad that's praying it with the rhythm of their breathing I I like to think that for Paul 1 Corinthians 8 6 was a prayer that he prayed um, kind of on the road or when he was going to sleep or whatever one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ and of course that is Trinitarian because as Paul would remind us when you are praying that you are praying it in the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who joins Father and Son, and so the Spirit is given to us so that we can call God Father and call Jesus Lord. Um, you know, it's uh, Abba, Father is the cry we have because of the Spirit, Romans 8, Galatians 4. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. So this is actually a Trinitarian moment, even though the Spirit isn't mentioned. Does that all make sense? Yeah, um, yeah, it, and, and I think it's, it's wonderful. The, the, you know, if, if we re- remember that at the era of Paul in, in that rabbinic time, as now for many, 
a good Jew would be saying the Shema three times a day. And so Paul, probably from his earliest, you know, we are now, I lay me down to sleep uh, uh, as an early prayer. His earliest, his earliest, you know, was the Shema includes, teach this to your children, put it on your doorpost, put it everywhere, right? And so three times a day, all of his life, he's been saying the Shema. And he's now found Jesus. And he's now found Jesus in the middle of it. Is it any wonder his writings are going to use the language and and echo his greatest understanding of the Shema at this point in his life? And I suspect that this is why Paul was under attack in Corinth by the non-Christian Jews. This is in Acts chapter 18. Um, And the charge that they bring against Paul in, in Acts 18 is basically for illegal worship. Now, it's a really interesting passage because um, uh, a little bit further down. Let's see, 18, here we go. Um, Uh, They go next door. He's preaching in the synagogue. They don't like it. He goes next door to um, to the house of Titus Justus. But then the next, next column... Where he was... Yeah, he, that, that's right. The, the, the Christ, that is the Messiah, was Jesus. But so he's, he's going to the Gentiles, but then in the next column, if we could... Yeah, um, uh, yeah here we are. Um, Ga- when Gallio is proconsul of Achaia, that's Seneca's brother, ah, and the Jews make a united attack on Paul and say, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, that's really interesting. In what way is it contrary to the law? Because the Jews were allowed by the Roman authorities to to do their own worship. The Romans tried to force everybody else to worship the Roman gods, but they knew that that wouldn't work with the Jews, so the Jews had a kind of a free pass. You're allowed to be Jews, so you go to your synagogue and do this. Um, But the Jews are saying to Gallio, in effect, Paul is teaching people to worship in a way which is wrong in our eyes and therefore is wrong in Roman law as well. And it's very interesting that Gallio says this is an in-house matter for you Jews to sort out. It's just a matter of questions about words and names. I'm not going to be a judge of these things. The extraordinary effect of that is that Christianity becomes a permitted variant on Judaism within southern Greece. And so it flourishes. That, that doesn't happen in Galatia, which is why there is huge problem in Galatia, because what's going on here seems to be against Roman law as well as Jewish law. So, so that tells you something about the, the central importance of this worship seen as, Paul would say, genuine Jewish worship, but with Jesus the Messiah in the middle of it. So um, uh, the, the way I've understood this, and, and you may disagree with me, but I'll put it into my words so you can disagree with me in public. Um, When the Jews said, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, I I, I do recognize that the Roman law did allow Jewish worship uh, when they didn't allow a lot of other contrary Mm -hmm. worship to, to Roman worship. 
but they did allow Jewish. But I think that the, the comment was more contrary to Jewish law. Yeah, but, but I think that's, that's right. But and the, in that way, it was exactly. outside of the purview of what should be allowed by Rome. It, it, exactly, exactly. That we're telling you, Gallio, that we know this guy's wrong, and therefore you permit Jewish worship. <coughs> this isn't, in fact, Jewish worship. Therefore, you shouldn't permit it. I mean, that's the kind of tangle that Paul is getting into the whole time. There's got overlap of different legal systems, different customs, and so on. Yeah, and, and if you look then at verse 15, where yeah. Gallio says, you're talking about words. And names. And names. I know, I know. Isn't that good? And your Torah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think you're dead on that this yeah. is a dispute over the way Paul was uh, interpreting yeah. Yeah. the Shema. The way he's teaching them to use the name of Jesus. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, fantastic. Okay, so um, we, we launched into this with this idea of the temple being uh, heaven and earth and humanity and its proper spiritually, truly spiritual, tr- truly human being an image bearer. And then there were these small working models, yeah, uh, yes. whether Israel, the tabernacle, the temple. Is, Israel Israel's is, kind of… Israel doesn't quite belong there because no. the point is these are small working models of new creation that with the fall and the failure, apparent failure of the original creational project, um, there were some philosophies in the ancient world, some kinds of Gnosticism, which would have said, well, the whole creation thing is finished, and that God should have done the flood and not rescued anybody, and just said, that's it, we're, we're, we're just going to live in heaven, and we're not going to do that earth stuff anymore. God doesn't do that. Um, Rather, God sets up a process with the call of Abraham to have a people who will be the people in whose midst he will come and dwell because that's what he intends to do ultimately. And as I did last night, I continually go on in my mind to Revelation 21 verse 3 where the great thing at the end of the book of Revelation is the dwelling of God is with humans. Not the dwelling of humans is with God. We've so much in the Western world told the story that way up but it's about God coming to dwell with us incarnation spirit and ultimately the new creation when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea so then the tabernacle almost tremblingly is a forward-looking symbol saying this is what's going to happen we celebrate it in the in the moment it's hugely dangerous, which is why you have those health and safety regulations called the Book of Leviticus. Um, because if, you, if, you, if, if you're going to if you're going to have God living in the midst, you need to know how to cope with this. Um, but it's, I mean, you've written. They'd have an you. Absolutely, absolutely. But the whole sacrificial system is is designed to keep the place clean and pure, because that has to be the case if God is going to come and dwell there. And if you mess that up, then either God, if he does come, will be cross with you when he's there and bad things are going to happen, or God would refuse to come. And ultimately, of course, that is what happened at the, end, uh, at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel when the priests are so messed up in the temple and they're not bothering about Yahweh and they're worshipping strange gods. And eventually the divine throne chariot, Ezekiel 8, 9, 10, 11, etc., does a vertical takeoff and lands on the Mount of Olives temporarily or halts above the Mount of Olives and then goes off and nobody knows where it's gone to. And the Jews have different theories about where God went. But then the second temple period is the time when people are saying he's promised to come back. We know that that's his purpose, to come back and dwell with us. Isaiah 40, um, you know, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. 
but it hasn't happened yet um, from their point of view. And the New Testament uses those texts to talk about Jesus. Okay, so I would urge you to consider that perhaps we can include Israel as a small working model had Israel chosen to be the Israel they were called to be. That, yes. that they would be a people, yeah. much like Paul says to the Corinthians, that we are the temple of God. Yeah. Uh, uh, at, and I'm not doing replacement theology, but yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. doing a, a modeling theology in, in the sense that, that those people were called to be set apart, to be holy as he is holy, yeah. to, to reflect God to the nations yep. And to be in that way a blessing to the nations. Absolutely. Not simply a blessing in the sense that they'd put out the Messiah, but a blessing in the sense of, of, of yeah. image bearing for God. And, and that's there in that passage in Exodus 19, where before the Sinai revelation, God has them there at the mountain. And he says, okay, you saw how I brought you out of Egypt on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now you are going to be the royal priesthood. Um, you are going to be my special people. Um, all the earth is mine, but you're going to be the special ones. And the point of that is a vocation in relation to the rest of the world. What's so, the wedding got to do with this? So <laughs> next next uh, Sunday, Scott Ryling will be preaching for me because next Saturday night in Miami, I'll be performing uh, uh, one of our daughter's weddings. Uh, <laughs> she's getting married to a fine young man. And... Um, Weddings are on my brain as a result. And so we have the groom and we have the bride. And weddings, um, from my perspective as an officiant, kind of do three things. You tell the story of the couple so that people know the couple. You give some marital advice that they'll never listen to and won't have any clue what you say, but other people in attendance will be sensitive to it because they're thinking this is a nice time. And so you take advantage of the moment. But third, and most importantly, you make sure the presence of God is there. And if you think about it, we've got the obvious examples of Jesus at the wedding of Cana starting his ministry. But how many of the parables of Jesus or the statements of Jesus use a metaphor of him, Jesus, being the groom, and the church, his people, being the bride. And, and you get then the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation. But you've got the same image if you go back into the Old Testament. Because if you read the Sinai experience, God has called Israel out from Egypt, bought Israel out of Egypt, out of that slavery, and marries her on Sinai. And the Sinai experience is God saying, this is what I'll do. I say I do as the husband. Now you say you do, if you will, as the, the, the bride. And then, of course, you've got the prophetic adultery and all of those things that, that go in. But this whole concept of God marrying his people and together heaven and earth merging and being a temple. And... John 2, which you referenced, is exactly on point for this. I mean, it's one of the many fascinating things about the way John's gospel works. But after that great prologue, the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst, we beheld his glory. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten Son has revealed him. Then 
you got the call of the first disciples and John the Baptist and all that in the rest of John chapter 1. John chapter 2 has two short parts. The first part is the wedding at Canaan. The second part is what Jesus does in the temple. And in the temple scene, second half of John 2, um, Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I'll build it again in three days. And they say, what on earth are you talking about? And John says, he spoke of the temple of his body. That's just in case we hadn't picked up the point from John 1.14. So what has the wedding at Cana got to do with that? I think exactly as you said, that in certainly ancient Hebrew thought, and I suspect in different parts of Greek thought as well, um, male and female would, in some respects, not all respects, correspond to heaven and earth, so that the coming together of bride and groom in the wedding at Cana and Jesus fixing it when it was all about to go horribly wrong because the wine ran out, um, that itself is a temple image and there's a kind of a to and fro. I I once did one of my favorite little moments when I was Bishop of Durham. I had to go and do a a day uh, for there's an organization in the Church of England called the Mother's Union, which sounds, sounds a, bit, um, a bit dowdy. Actually, it's a very active and, and lively and friendly bunch. And parish by parish, they meet, and the, these are mothers and often grandmothers as well. And part of the point is to help family life be sustained and to help young mothers who aren't quite sure what they're supposed to be doing, bringing up their children, etc. But anyway, they're having a Mother's Union day, and they asked me to come and talk about marriage in the Bible. And so I did uh, a a talk in the morning, and I took them briefly from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. And I said, here you have heaven and earth, and at the climax of Genesis 1, you have male and female in God's image. And there's something going on there. And then with the new heavens and the new earth, you have the new Jerusalem coming down like a bride adorned for her husband. And, uh, And I said, and then you can work in from those two ends, and you can see God's promise about new creation and it's reflected in God and Israel getting it together and not getting it together, and in Jesus, etc., etc. And I did it a, a bit longer than I've just done it now, but maybe it was sort of 35, 40 minutes or so. And in the Q&A afterwards, one lovely lady who must have been nearer 80 than 70, she stood up, and I'm not going to try and do the Northeastern accent, uh, not particularly anyway, but um, she, said, she began by saying that, that last week she said, I had problems with my eyes. She said, I had cataracts. She said, I had to go and have my cataracts done. And she said, and when I came out after the operation, I could see everything clearly for the first time for many years. She said, that's what's just happened this morning. And I thought, wow, that was a wonderful moment. Suddenly, the whole of the Bible story with heaven and earth and male and female, it all makes sense. And I think, wow, that's, that's what you have theologians for in the church, yeah. to help moments like that happen. Amen. But so, so that I, I see so much of this in John, and then it comes out in Paul in, say, Ephesians 5 Ephesians, and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, that's the whole absolutely. marriage analogy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, is it just an analogy? Or is no, it, yeah, yeah, quite, yeah, quite. Yeah. So. Okay, well, we have, um, I want the good news and the bad news. The good news is you got two extra minutes with Tom up here. The bad news is he has to be in Waco and he has to be there rapidly. And so he cannot stand up here and visit with you. And I am so very sorry about that, that I'm going to usher him out this door. And so, uh, sorry. <laughs> I do hope you'll be here. Scott Riling will be teaching this class next week. I thank you all for being here. Before we leave, I would ask Tom to, to put on his, his Lord Bishop of Durham hat for a moment and, and uh, uh, 
bless us in the name of, of Jesus. So if you'd like to stand to leave, uh, we'll get a blessing from the bishop. When I was in Durham, there was a blessing I used most of the services that I took. So I will we'll pause and just be silent for a minute, and then I will say that blessing. So may Almighty God make you faithful to his calling, cheerful in his service, and fruitful for his kingdom. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and through you with all those to whom he sends you, today and always. Amen. Amen.